commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And uh, I think it's safe to say, in a lot of ways, if not for tonight's guest, there may be no Benal of America, because he was one of the first people, he was the first person, you know, like, who's ever been on the show as a guest, or, you know, anybody in the field, whoever, whoever, like, (laughs) gave me the time of day, you know, whoever, like, hung out with me at, uh, at the first ever X conference um, back in 2004, and I was sort of, this is like to show my naivete about this field. I, like, showed up thinking I could get a job somehow. It was like, Jesus, dude. I look back on that, like, I had resumes. I'm like, what am I, an asshole? <laughs> now I'm like, what, what, what are you, insane at all? You, you can't get a job like that in fucking this crazy field. So... Uh, for folks who don't know, this was like the Woodstock of the paranormal, the, ex, the first X conference, and uh, or uh, the Woodstock of ufology. It was like insane. Um, uh, Jim Mars was there. That's where I first met Jim Mars. Uh, Rich Hoagland was there. Linda Molden Howe. Oh, Nick Pope. I'm trying to think. Tim Good. All kinds of people. I'd have to look at a blabber. And and of course, our guest tonight, Peter Robbins. Uh, Long time UFO researcher. He spent a lot of time looking at the Reynolds from Forest incident. Uh, he wrote a book about it, um, and he's, he's just the circuit. He's all over the place. He's, he's been writing about this topic for years. He worked with Bud Hopkins back in the 80s. Um, you know, he's just sort of like this, uh, this, this venerable, beloved figure that's been in the field for years. And I think why people like him so much is because he gives, you know, he talks to everybody. You know, he, he's very, you know, when you talk to him, you're like the only person in the room, and he really treats you with respect, even if you're just some up-and-comer. And that's what I was at the time when I met him. I was like... You know, just hanging out at the bar at the hotel at, uh, in Gaithersburg, and Peter and I hung out and chatted all night. And I was like, "All right, this feels pretty cool, man." They're not all like crazy, <laughs> crazy like uh, quasi celebrity wannabes. So it was that that kind of made me stick with this, and I'll always uh, forever hold them in, in in gratitude for that. So welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you, man. Like I said, I really, I really, I think if I had gone home and not and not made it that thing, I probably would have been like. Yeah, it was cool, but these people are kind of unfriendly. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. I've created a monster. <laughs> and a great monster. <laughs> it's great to be back on the show, Tim. Thanks, man. Uh, I meant what I said, though, dude, for real. Like, uh, if, not, if not for that, it was, it was a real critical sort of uh, critical moment in uh, the course of this whole thing. So, you know. You know, um, for me... Um 
there's an aphorism. It sounds a little corny, but um, giving is its own reward. I've always found that it's true. Not only that, but we're all in this together, and that's not a catchphrase. Um, I, I have very little patience for prima donnas, uh, people that do good work and, and are available for other people uh, in my heart. And the fact is that other people did this for me when I wasn't even a blip on the map. I reached out to people I admired in the field who were well-known. And um, with almost no uh, exceptions, um, they encouraged me, supported me, helped me out, helped give me confidence in doing what I was doing. And, um, you know, pay, pay it forward. There you uh, go. It's the way it should be, but unfortunately, it's not always the way it is. No, no. And, and to the, and to the, <laughs> yeah. Like I said, my naivete, in a sense, to, to the, <laughs> to the, in the defense, I would say, yeah, of the, of the, of the, of the Uber stars of the X Conference <laughs> of, of 2004. It was like, I've been to these. I remember I saw you in Exeter. I was laughing about this. I saw you in Exeter this past mm-hmm. summer, and I. That's right. And I said, <laughs> I was talking to my friend George. I think you met George. And yes. I said. <laughs> and it was like it was a meet and greet, but like these ufology meet and greets turn into like a high school dance in a sense, where it's like there's not a lot of moving around. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, I think the other thing is um, those of us that put ourselves forward into the public realm here. Um, some of us feel um, the obligation. Um, the honor uh, of, of being in that position comes with an obligation, and hopefully one that uh, you enjoy, of being available to hang and to talk and to make new friends, uh, to be there for them as other people were there for you, and to do all we can to keep this topic going more and more mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, for those... <laughs> Like I said, for those Uber stars, I can understand now maybe my day would be <laughs> less chatty because you can't move like 10 feet in some of these events. Uh, it does comes come up down and talk to that to sometimes. And yeah. uh, uh, we have to be careful, too, that we don't um, get into allowing ourselves to be monopolized because there are other folks that want to speak with us that we want to speak to. Um, and... Uh, for each, you know, person that you do really connect with, um, there is the beginning of another potential friendship or uh, colleagueship or just time well spent. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's why, you know, I've recommended you to people who, you know, put on events and stuff because it's like Thanks. I think of you as a great ambassador of the of the field, you know, because I, I'm just not – you know, I, I'm the kind of person, I, I'm not very good with strangers in that sense, <laughs> you know, but you're very giving, and I'm always like, if you want someone who really, you know, the audience is going to go home and be like, wow, that guy was awesome, you know, uh, I'm like, talk, get Peter Robbins, because he, you know, he connects with like every person he talks to, so. I'm going to send you a $10 bill. I uh, hope it doesn't get lost in the mail. <laughs> I'll send you a $10 invoice. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um. But yeah, talking about making this stuff more popular, I, I, I feel beholden in a sense. Uh, first, to ask about this, and I'm, I don't know. I'm sure you probably do interviews. You know, where you've just come up. But have you talked about? Have you? Have you? What do you think of this this stuff from uh, the Pentagon and everything in December? Um, 
in a uh, Mr. Spock kind of eyebrow-raising, chin-rubbing way, fascinating, Captain. Um, the fact is that this has happened repeatedly for decades, where uh, a major media venue um, publishes a story. Mm-hmm. And it's seen as a huge breakthrough sometimes because we associate that venue, in this case, the venerable uh, gray lady herself, the New York Times. Um, not only did they publish two uh, worthy articles in uh, December, <clears throat> one was on the front page, uh, at least the first part. Uh, and it, it led into um, this whole thing that has happened, um, I guess the best known person that we associate with this turn in the road is um, Tom DeLong, right. uh, yeah. who is um, likable enough, uh, seems sincere, I wish him well, and we'll see what happens. Um, and um, the thing is that the Times itself, though, which is emblematic of major media, um, covered the story very much with the same pattern that they've used since the summer of 1947. And I say that as possibly the only person uh, you will ever know who has read every single article, commentary, uh, letter to the editor, editorial, photo caption relative to the flying saucer slash UFO subject that the New York Times has ever printed. And I forgot that you had done that deep dive. Yeah, yeah. 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 So this and, is the perfect um, person was, to talk to, folks. Yeah, exactly. It really yeah. was an interesting uh, thing. Their their basic strategy from the start, and they really led the way uh, for major media to um, create what I would call the ridicule factor. And um, it was locked down. It was done. It was absolutely sealed, not by the end of the summer of 47, but by the end of July. They slammed away so hard and so dramatically and so consistently um, at the subject with condescension, with sarcasm, with pseudoscience, with um, skepticism uh, that bordered on insulting the uh, figures that they bring forward, especially in the early years. Uh, We'd like to uh, quote this authority. The authority is almost always a psychologist or a a, uh, astronomer, often not named. And um, oh wow! It um, again, it's fascinating, um, and it worked brilliantly. Um, the rest of the major media, which at the time consisted almost exclusively of newspapers and a few major um, broadcast news organizations. Again, we're talking about before television here, so we had uh, NBC leading the way, uh, David Sarnoff coming out of uh, Rockefeller Center, and uh, then CBS. Uh, ABC wasn't even a a glint in its mother's eye at the time, and America bought it, and by extension, the world did as well. So in this coverage in December, um, they lay it out with some respectability, and in this case, we had kind of a secret weapon in there uh, that two of the three um, authors of that main piece in the Times um, had experience in the work and already took it seriously. One was Leslie Kane. Uh, who is actually a real-life journalist who got involved in ufology as opposed to people like me who are self-trained investigative writers and trained ourselves to do that because of our obsession with the subject. Right. The other was a Time staff writer named Ralph Blumenthal, who also uh, has done some good coverage of the subject. But once again, toward the end, they trot out the skeptical possibilities and the what-ifs. The second piece um, 
was also of great interest to me because it discussed um, uh, the experiences of two uh, military pilots who had been scrambled and got close enough to see what they were looking at was not a frigate airplane and um, had the courage uh, to make that report. Um, for those of us in the work, there are countless credible military accounts, but to see it in the Times um, impressed me. And again, then it was followed a week later with an editorial by an otherwise usually uh, um, competent, obviously intelligent uh, writer for the Times, uh, Ross Duault, who once again reduced the whole subject back to a 1947 perspective of it could be this, it could be that, we don't know about this. Of course, if it was real, we'd all know about it now. And, um, you know, the New York Times still carries weight in this world. Yeah. So um, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, as far as that goes. But um, it's, it was an awful coverage, no question about it. And it got people talking um, and, for some people, maybe allowed them the grace to allow themselves to take the subject a little more seriously because this establishment monolith uh, is publishing around it with a hint of seriousness. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that kind of uh come through out of that out of that coverage since yeah. December where it's like this is they seem to be taking it a little more seriously. Um it's interesting. It's it's certainly interesting. I mean, uh I don't quite know what to make of it just yet cuz it feels like uh it's it's still unfolding, you know what I mean? At well, least it I is. hope. It There's is. no question. And what we're either going to see over the next months uh, or longer is a, um, a genuine turn in the road based on um, this kind of juggernaut that, that Tom seems to be heading. Um, I'm always circumspect when I learn that um, there is a business built into it and money is changing hands. Uh, not that that in itself in any way should um, you know put a damper on the subject, but it just makes you want to keep a closer eye on it. I, I certainly, uh, coming from an optimistic perspective and always trying to uh, have a positive outlook, until I learn otherwise and then, uh, yeah, yeah. God, God help anybody that's in my way as far as um, 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 uh, being a naysayer on what is obviously the truth. Um, I wish him well. I, I hope that he produces the results that we're all hoping for and, and creates a, a wider audience. I think sometimes when a figure from popular culture comes forward and says, you know, I had a sighting or I take it seriously or I believe, and that includes everybody from Elvis to Dan Aykroyd to, um, uh, my God, the, there's, it's literally a, a pantheon of people yeah. Uh, yeah. in popular culture, Muhammad Ali. Um, you know, it, it causes a momentary blip on the radar for some but this is not that. Um, Tom, who brings uh, certainly a segment of um, his rock and roll audience with him from Blink-182, uh, um, who for many people, they're waiting for somebody that they you know, see as an iconoclast, uh, admire in popular culture, like their art or their music. Um, and if they turn political or something, then there's a chance that they will listen to them more than an established political figure, historian, scientist, right. or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting. Uh, it seems to uh, – I just see a lot of interesting attitudes from ufology about it. Uh, yeah. You know, where it's like I 
I'm trying to remain sort of uh, uh, agnostic about it. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm, I'm skeptical because it's like we've seen this a million times, like sure. you said, you know. But it's like there's also this backlash where it's like, can't you just appreciate what you're getting? You know? I don't know if you've seen that kind of thing where it's like, this is a good thing for us. Shut up and go along with it. And it's like, it's a good thing. But we are, uh, in the work, are famous for squabbling, uh, (laughs) splitting infinitives, um, having pet theories that we like to nurse along. Um, There is a, a phrase that when you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Obviously, that's not true. (laughs) <laughs> but allegorically, I know that you and our audience uh, know what I mean. And for me, um, starting at the very beginning, 40 years ago, when my uh, late great sister Helen shared with me her uh, abduction-related memories at a time when, you know, I, I know that Betty and Barney Hill were in the culture, but I, I could have cared less about the whole thing. I was an artist in New York, and that's what I was going to stay and become famous and a great painter, and it evaporated when this other thing came charging into my life. Um, But um, you had mentioned Bud before, bless his heart, um, uh, Bud Hopkins, uh, arguably the the father of of modern uh, scientific abduction-related research, which certainly is the most disturbing, complex, and I think important aspect of, of the research, and for outsiders, the most ludicrous and the hardest to grasp, except if you're one of the several million people that's had this kind of experience happen to them. And we connected um, about a year after I became involved, um, and this would have been in about 1976, five years before he had published his first book, when we were both painters with an interest um, um, in the subject, living in New York, and became friends. The uh, friendship grew over the years, and by 87, when he published uh, um, Intruders, after he had published Missing Time, a very important book, both of them actually, um, 81 and 87, and his life exploded, he needed help. And um, it was a wonderful friendship, and I was glad to help. I knew it was important work. I found it fascinating, and I had the privilege of working as his assistant for on and off for most of the time between uh, the mid-'80s and um, 2000 when uh, my sister died and I I went into the tank for a prolonged period of time. And when I came out, um, he had very wisely replaced me with another one of our uh, Intruders Foundation board members who was doing a great job. So the last years of our uh, acquaintanceship um, returned to the first years of our uh, friendship where, you know, I would spend time there regularly, um, hang out and do what we did that first time in his kitchen, sit at the table, drink coffee, and talk about art life and UFOs. And when he got sick, um, I helped out as much as I could. And uh, I still think about him every day, uh, a remarkable man, a great guy as well as a great man. Uh, his work remains very important and worth reading. And um, I just feel very fortunate that I had the chance that I did to be a bug on the wall for all those years. For sure. Now, it's interesting to think about. I was thinking of this before we uh, sat down to talk tonight. It's like we met maybe like 15 years ago. And, and right. you know, I guess in 15 years you may look back and be like, well, it was funny. Things have changed because uh, of this thing. Without putting too much stock right. into this Pentagon thing, it's like we haven't – nothing nothing <laughs> – between 2004 and now, like, really nothing had changed. We haven't gotten any closer yeah. to the answer to this. It's pretty remarkable in a sense. Um, 
You know, it used to kind of frustrate me and worry me, and sort of yeah. jumping off kind of what you said about about Bud and everything. It's like when Jim Mars passed away this summer, he was yeah. sort of like this mentor to me, and yeah. it kind of like finally drove the nail or the hammer or whatever drove the closed the lid, I guess, in my mind or something that it was like, all right, I may get through this whole life and not find out any answers to this. You know, yeah. like, yeah. like you know, I, I think, but all, I think up until up until Jim died this summer, I was like, yeah. I'll probably find out, you know. But when that happened, I was like. All right. <laughs> I'm getting to that age now where more people I know are dying. I know the nerve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like it, it's a spooky feeling. It, it, to digress for a moment, um, um, the great Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, who broke in years ago with an unforgettable character, Ali G, the white mm. rapper, yeah. with about the uh, three uh, brain cells, who did this phenomenal mock show in Britain that for the first season – um, was doubly uh, uh, remarkable because many of his guests, who were um, very important people in public life, accepted it, not realizing the show was a satire or that he was a, a master uh, of you know maintaining this character where behind it is a, a brilliant comic mind and a, and a real scholar. And I I'm, just have to relate this. Um, at one point, he had on as his guest... Um, uh, at that time, the fairly recently retired um, uh, former, um, 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 not Attorney General, uh, Chief Doctor, what's it called? Um, Surgeon General? Surgeon General, yes, exactly. Um, uh, C. Everett Koop, who we all remember from yeah. his kind of Lincoln-esque beard. And one thing is leading to another, and at a certain point, um, Koop remarks that, well, you know, everybody dies. And the camera goes to Cohen's face, and it is a blank. It is you. What you see is somebody realizing for the first time, of course, uh, <laughs> acting, that this may actually in, include him. Yes, his, yes, his yes. response is uh, everybody. And <laughs> yes, he yes, engages yes. him on that for a while, and that that um, that epiphany that you just described. I remember hitting it fifteen, twenty years ago, and saying, I may well not learn the answers to the questions that I began seeking in the mid-70s. Um, I've now you know, seen some of the older generation move on to whatever comes next, and gosh, it is possible that um, I'm going to miss the boat on this. How do I feel about that? The, that is the important thing, and what I realized was I feel fine about it. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get into this because I love it. I got into it because I was obsessed with it. Uh, I love the arts. I love photography. I love New York City. I love traveling. I love my friends. I love nature. But I don't love UFO studies. I think it's important. I, I think I've been able to make some contributions. I, I pride myself on being a good communicator. And I'm not afraid to answer more questions than uh, some of my colleagues with the response, I don't know. Right. Um, and never fake anything. Um, we're all feeling our way through this, uh, like that uh, wonderful um, uh, idea of the seven blind men feeling around an elephant, and each one describing very different things and having very different definitions of what that creature is that they're on, whether or not you're at the trunk end, uh, the rear, the side, the tusk, whatever. Yeah. Um, we don't know. And... Um, we, you know, what I can say at this point after 40 years is I know we are not alone in the universe. Um, I think um, 
that at this point it's become somewhat um, uh, stylish to um, suggest that, well, there are so many alternatives that this phenomena may be. And um, having pioneered that idea, uh, the great Jacques Vallée and um, a handful of other people, um, one would be John Keel, offering other explanations as opposed to the extraterrestrial. Um, for me, there's literally no doubt that some of this UFO-related phenomena is indeed extraterrestrial in nature. The rest of it, who the hell knows, and I'm open to anything. Um, I am perfectly comfortable with that attitude. I will always be a seeker in this. Um, I, I think we have you know, a history of um, a study where we are all trying to self-educate ourselves, where some people know or feel they know some of the answers, and some of them may in fact have them. Uh, as Bud used to uh, remark, why should we trust them any more than the aliens? And at the same time, deception seems to run as a very strong thread through the abduction phenomena, through the contact phenomena. Not that, you know, they are not as they represent themselves to some people, or that they represent themselves to some people in certain manners um, that simply are not accurate. They may well be as involved in deception and misleading and not being honest as, well, we human beings are. Um, and I don't want to sound, you know, like a, a burnt-out skeptic or anything. I am open to anything. Yeah. Um, there are wonderful contributors to the field, but I think when I see um, some of the new guards saying it's, it's anything but extraterrestrial, I have to smile and shake my head. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's akin to saying I know the unknown. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I know you. Yeah. There's an intellectual arrogance there. And, um, you know, uh, the journey should be the thing because we may not get there or get there together. And if you are not engaged in the journey of learning and educating yourself and networking and um, putting your views forward to be challenged or to be changed by good arguments, logic, proof, um, you should probably be doing something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's a lot of that, there wouldn't be too many people left in ufology <laughs> if they took up your advice. Uh, possibly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know what you mean in a sense. Where uh, you hit the nail on the head with the word stylish. Yeah, it's like it's the end thing to be, you know, to just um, to to be like steadfast in the refu to, to be to show your, your your credibility, your hipster card or whatever. Where it's like the ETH is bullshit, man. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's everything but the ETH. You know, it's like I've always held a soft spot for it, and, I, and you know, anytime I have a conversation with somebody on the show, you know, I always just go back to that template scenario in discussing this whole topic because to me, it's like that makes the most sense. Yeah, um, one of the things in coming up through the ranks was dealing with not skeptics. We should all be skeptics and hardcore. Um, I'm from Missouri, show me something. Uh, the iconic X-Files poster, which blew into our 
consciousness transom in the early 90s featured four words which have embedded themselves in popular culture, not just in this country, but around the world. I want to believe. And um, I I was in um, Greece this past summer, again, speaking at a a conference there. I love Greece. And um, there is a community of... uh, uh, wonderful people. They're very involved in the work of Wilhelm Reich, which has captured my imagination from the time I was a teenager, and which I am still very involved in. And um, one of my colleagues there, in bringing up this "I want to believe" uh, mantra, which for so many of us is filled with mystical longing and hope and fear and all that, and he said, "No, I don't want to believe. I want to know." I thought, "Well said," but there is that part of us that longs for these deep, deep truths uh, and knowledge that is not accessible. So some people get frustrated. They uh, make a decision that it is this, that, or the other thing and um, do their best to put forward that agenda. For me, you follow the path where it goes and what you're able to um, put forward as evidence is um, as good as it gets. And you may always be wrong. Uh, The important thing there is when you are, to own up to it um, as publicly, as quickly, and as fully as possible, um, and get on with your work. Well, again, that's <laughs> this should be like this should be like advice for all all <laughs> all the people in ufology. Yeah, yeah. If you're wrong about something, just yeah, be cool about. It. But yeah, no, I know. At the same time, we we're talking about people who, um, in many cases, I adore who are. Friends. Oh yeah, for sure. And at the same time, you know, we go at it uh, and have a little fun at each other's expense sometimes. If you can't uh, have that kind of humor, um, I just feel sorry for you. I think the highest form of humor is that, having fun at your own expense rather than somebody else's. But um, because the work is fraught with anxiety, um, with conflict, um, with uh, extraordinarily uh, overwhelming implications for humanity, there are times that it can be overwhelming. And I'm not just talking about people who have legitimate um, contact or abduction experiences. I'm talking about those of us that do the work, too. I've had periods where I've had to manage my own anxiety, and, um, you know, you move through it yeah, um, and, and just keep going. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I forgot where uh, – yeah, I lost my train of thought there on that. But, um, it's derailed. There you go. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open to all these other theories as well. You know what I mean? But to me, it's like it has it, it become a little too fashionable to be like, well, the ETH can't be it because for some reason. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, that's, you know, it has to be included still. Here's a, a mantra that I came up with years ago, and it, it revolved around um, Bud Hopkins' dealings with – a person who has a, a, a very major reputation in ufology uh, for decades until he moved on, um, which is Philip Klass as uh, the debunker-in-chief. Um, Philip, we now know, was, a, um, was paid to do his work and um, was a son of a bitch, but also very charming in his own way. And um, again, it's to take the time to address every skeptic uh, that comes at you if you're involved, especially in um, controversial work, um, will drain you. But to not address uh, debunkers or skeptics who um, are smart, but um, their agenda is to bring you down because the mantra for um, debunking for me is it can't be, 
therefore it isn't, therefore it's something else. And my job, uh, self-assigned of course, is to pat you on the head and explain to you um, how what you think it is can't be because I can't handle that possibility, frankly, parenthetically. Um, so it could be this, that, or the other thing, everything from um, uh, you know, um, movement in the sky uh, uh, in some strange weather formation or a misinterpretation of a conventional object, all very true. Um, I, I think if we were able to have accurate statistics uh, going back to, let's say, the beginning of the modern age of UFO, which kicked in ferociously in the summer of 47, um, we might be amazed that so few, quote-unquote, flying saucer slash UFO sightings accounts were explainable in conventional terms, no matter how exotic, now more than ever, because we human beings have stuff up there that mimics you know, are images from science fiction or very likely uh, advanced um, uh, technology from parts unknown that come and go with impunity. Um, and you do have to take the time to uh, address in hyper uh, detail uh, attacks sometimes, even though you'd rather be doing something else with your time. Right, right. And, you know, that's part of the way it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of the field. It's like yep. it, it, Phil Class leaves and, uh, you know, Bill Nye comes along. So it's yep. like they, they just keep – they, they, they replace each other, you know, generationally just like <laughs> just like ufology. It's like Tom and Jerry. So it, it – yeah, it's interesting. But it, it, it does make me wonder um, – I was – I did kind of appreciate in a sense. We did get a victory for all – you know, I know a lot of people – are super skeptical about this Pentagon thing, but I, we can definitely chalk up a victory in the sense that, like, they had a secret program and no one really knew about it. So, yeah. so, so and, all the skeptics who say have said all these years, like, they can never keep anything like that a secret. It's like, well, uh, they did, they did. We know for sure because we just found out that they had this secret program. Well, absolutely, and that argument um, I think is a very um, active one going back to uh, the dawn of this subject when I first got involved my um, best foil for bouncing ideas off of to challenge me and uh, as a result to make me uh, go back and uh, sharpen my arguments with factual information present documents um, and be a better debater uh, a, a art that seems to be disappearing from um, our education system which is tragic um, that um, that was my dad's argument. He was uh, a um, um, served in, in World War II in the Army Air Corps, and um, I had an aunt who was a secretary at the Manhattan Project. Um, my dad's thing was, you know, if this were real, there would have been leaks over the years. And my ultimate argument was there have been hundreds of leaks, but what happens to them? They end up um, as a paper published, you know, originally in some mimeographed uh, journal of that, you know, has 40 subscribers or as a talk that somebody gives at a library, or ultimately, if you get into the big leagues, uh, a major presentation at the UFO Congress or the uh, International MUFON Symposium. But still, we're, um, we're a tiny fraction of the world at large. Right, right. And um, we, it's easy to see us as cultists or believers or, you know, all of the superficial, insulting uh, terms that people toss at people who make them uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, yeah, we're not going to, you need, you need, like, help in getting sort of the word out. That's why this whole thing was yeah. interesting in, in a sense. Uh, it's but funny, I, it, 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 I don't know what it says about the world, but it's like, to me, it, it was interesting in a lot of ways because 
this is sort of like one of these get off my lawn things where as I get older, I'm surprised <laughs> to see like younger people. But it's like to, to, it seemed like to, to a lot of people online, um, not that not in the not in the UFO bubble of like our Facebook uh, community, respectively, but just sort of like on, in media and stuff, yes. you know, bloggers and, and you know, tweeters and all that shit. Um, you know, like you know, sports writers, entertainment people like that too. Not just not not people in our field. The, it, the a lot of people were like, hey, the government just announced that the the aliens are the UFOs are real and stuff. Like it was taken as in a sense. Sort of a limited hangout disclosure, in a way, to to I guess to younger people. Yeah. Well, what really happened was um, some good research and investigation revealed that in 2004, as I recall, um, a program uh, went into effect that was funded to the tune of a little over 20 million dollars to study this subject in relative secrecy. Um, these things have probably happened repeatedly within different agencies, offices, etc. Yeah, one would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but this is the one that made the papers, and it involved real elected officials whose names that we know. Um, for that, um, that that first wave um, when it when you realize that these are, my gosh, these aren't ufologists, these are senators. This is a right. yeah, exactly. level yeah. of the game, and I'm excited. Um, I remember um, 30 years ago, uh, there was a major uh, MUFON symposium um, in 87 that marked the 40th anniversary of uh, Roswell, Kenneth Arnold, and modern age of UFOs, so to say. And they had their symposium in Washington, D.C. at American University. And there was a buzz in the audience at a certain point at a break that um, Senator Claiborne Pell of Rhode Island um, was in the audience. And a number of us, you know, were intrigued. And um, uh, not long after that, later that afternoon, myself and a number of friends um, came upon him at a break. Uh, there he was with his name tag. There was no question. Um, a good and decent guy, um, best known for the educational grants that um, hold his name still. And we asked him, you know, what are you doing here, Senator? And um, his response, um, very given very easily, was, um, as a private citizen, I'm as interested in this as anybody, uh, which certainly may well have been true. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, we're talking about a ranking American senator. Yeah, I can't uh, even imagine, like, that happening today. That would be, like, stunning. <laughs> it, was, it was exciting. It was exciting because... You know, you turn around and there's Stanton, Freeman, and, um, uh, you know, Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and uh, a lot of the people who were pantheons of the work at the time. And here is somebody who is emblematic of the establishment. And, of course, at the time you think, wow, this is a hopeful sign. Who knows who's going to come up next? Well, <laughs> good luck on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, many, there's been many start and stops. I guess the I guess kind of the point I was in, making, in a sense, in the in the get off my lawn thing, where it was almost like people, these younger people, it seemed like they were, I mean, who knows, they're online, but it's like, uh, it, or, or at least uh, less cynical about the subject than I am, because I've, I've been looking at it for all these years. They were just kind of like blasé about it. They were like, oh, okay, you have both real, all right. You know, there wasn't any... It didn't shatter the world like uh, like a lot of people have suspected. I hope that's a good sign if this is some kind of like planned <laughs> thing that yeah. like people didn't freak out. Um, they were more kind of just like the general reaction I got was like, huh, that's interesting, you know. 
and also sort of like, can you believe this world is so crazy that they just announced this and no one seems like, and, you know, it was already, <laughs> within a week it was like, we were, we were, we're all too busy dealing with Donald Trump right now. We don't have time for aliens. He takes up all the air in the room, and um, people have asked me if I think that um, disclosure per se uh, is any more or any less likely under um, this administration. Uh, my feeling is it is absolutely no more likely than it has been since Harry Truman. Um, one thing that we tend to forget, um, things have changed so much since this phenomena happened in so many respects in human experience, popular culture, society, population, etc. Um, Truman, and I'd include Eisenhower, were the last two American presidents to probably know about as much about this as any American president has, and their uh, stay-the-course attitude. Um, I understand and appreciate now, rather than when I was younger and power to the people and, you know, let us have the information, we can handle it, and, and we're not weighing all the factors they are. But at this point, if any American president were to ever come forward I mean, naive as it is to even consider at this point in history that one world leader could simply spring this on the world, although let us not count out the new, um, uh, the, new um, the president of China, who now, uh, as of this week, may be president for the rest of his life. Yes. How wonderful yes. that is. And Mr. Putin, even as just a political way to um, take another leadership position as we become more and more insular here in the States. Um, but we have to remember that party affiliations, um, what we'll call conservatism or liberalism, um, are asides when you are a member of that very exclusive club of being president. And whether it had been President Obama or now um, President Trump, Imagine, um, you know, coming forward one night, my fellow Americans, it's my solemn duty to inform you, blah, blah, blah. It's never going to happen because right. with that statement, they would be having to admit that every American president, uh, many of them who we hold in great esteem, depending on our political views and philosophical attitudes, um, whether they're uh, Democratic Party or Republicans, uh, whether they're um, – arch-conservatives or, you know, left-wing liberals. Every American president is an unindicted co-conspirator in the greatest cover-up in the history of the world, period. Right, right. And that's a touchy thing. So don't Maybe that's what would bring them. Maybe, that, maybe that's the one, one thing that would bring the country together at this well, point. Well, yes, I think it might. And <laughs> I, I remember um, I wasn't involved in the work at the time, but at a point in the 70s, I, I, um, I'm trying to remember who was the first one to – introduce it to me, but um, it wasn't Friedman, but the idea um, that as we were coming toward Watergate in, in 71 or so, 72, um, the idea um, started to gain traction in ufology that Nixon, who um, now seems like an elder statesman and uh, a major <laughs> intellect, um, a paranoid, but, um, uh, you know, he wasn't stupid, um, that Nixon, feeling more and more cornered, might pull the plug on this, because if he did, all of a sudden it would be like, wait a minute, um, 
what? We're being visited by aliens or by other intelligences from different dimensions or what have you. Right. We've got to stick with the guy that we have. This is no time for an impeachment. Of course, that didn't happen. I, I think that the only way that a president of the United States, and I say that as opposed to other first world leaders, would ever even consider this is if they knew their hand was going to be forced, uh, whether by earthly forces of um, you know, uh, another world leader saying I'm going to um, be the one to do it, or by them. Um, there was, in the 80s, an absolutely mediocre miniseries that in the, uh, I guess, the 10 years ago or so or less, was redone, spending more money, and just as hokey, called V, like V. Oh, you didn't like V? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought after a very short time, it had, um, it basically becomes every World War II resistance movie. Right, yeah, yeah. With the aliens being the Nazis and, right, uh, right, yeah. you know, the, uh, the human beings being the Jews. And um, at the same time, I thought that the beginning, the premise, the opening of the story was brilliant beyond words, was as fine a science fiction construct as I have ever imagined, uh, worthy of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, um, Arthur C. Clarke, um, Gene Roddenberry, and it was simply this. One morning, everybody on the planet wakes up, and guess what? Over the 60 biggest cities, one mile up, is a giant honking mile-across mothership. Game over. Uh, from there, it was all downhill. Right, but I agree. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah so the premise was great, and then it, yeah, then it became like, so, yeah. Um, well, people like me um, uh, will say uh, sometimes that, um, you know, disclosure has been coming since 1947, one, two, seven, 18 people at a time. Right. Who, they used to say that a, a conservative is a liberal that had has been mugged, and the, at least in New York, forget about it. <laughs> Uh, I've never heard that one. That's good. Like uh, that. One could say that a UFO skeptic, a uh, UFO, in, I hate the word believer, but a somebody who takes the subject. An advocate. Yes, absolutely seriously. Um, m- may well be somebody who used to joke about it, but has had an experience, a sighting, or knows somebody that they would trust with their life who's confided to them something similar. Um, so it is changing. Um, it's changing arithmetically, but not geometrically. And um, I I know there are some in the field that would love if we could um, develop the critical mass within our population, whereby um, there would be enough oomph to begin to create like an anti-Vietnam War kind of movement. Having lived through that uh, and been a part of it, it was very dramatic. It wasn't just us, you know, 20-year-olds marching in the streets. It was our parents. It was Walter Cronkite. It was the, um, the Attorney General of the United States. And then everything changed. Um, I don't see that happening unless something unforeseen happens. And in that case, you know, all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, nobody's – I think the big thing that has prevented the subject from really ever – getting that sort of like cultural cachet is that like no one's life depends on this, mm. you know? And I mean, like that, <laughs> the aliens may be laughing at that cause they may be yeah. like, Oh, if you only knew, <laughs> you know, but, but as far as we know, you know, it's like I get up and go to work every day and nothing would change if the, if there were aliens or not, but it's That's like, right. you know, yeah. being, being sent off to war or, 
you know, having the right to vote or having the right to get married. These are real, like, important issues, you know, to uh, real issues. <laughs> I, I think that many people go through kind of a a tunnel of um, uh, changes on this if they become, like I did when I was younger, obsessed with the subject. And um, in my first few years, I, I literally went into therapy over this because I uh, was so obsessed. It, it was not just my sisters sharing these memories uh, with me, and I um, had no reason to doubt her, and I still don't. Uh, in fact, now her very words and her drawings and her descriptions, I've heard them hundreds of times, sometimes word for word, from people not just all over this country, but in many other countries. And the, how can I say, um, part of what consumed me was um, this is happening and I'm living in a schizophrenic world where there are those of us that know or suspect uh, that things are not as they seem in a very dramatic way and other people who are, you know, among them the kindest, most thoughtful, uh, considerate, responsible people, paying their taxes, doing their best to raise healthy kids, uh, paying their mortgages, making friendships, uh, putting money away for, you know, when they're older. But they're sleepwalking. They have no idea. And I, I would regularly be walking down a street in New York and being uh, a, a filmatic person, a, a film lover since I was a young child, my mind would literally go into a split screen. And on one side would be me in the moment walking down East 23rd Street to my teaching job at the School of Visual Arts. On the other side of the screen was me as Kevin McCarthy at the end of the invasion of the body snatchers standing in the highway screaming, they're here, you're next, they're here. Um, I dealt with it and moved on. But um, one has to make their peace with these things. And um, if you express those passionate views um, too passionately to the wrong person, you are not only not going to get an advocate or create uh, the possibility for a, another person to take this subject seriously, uh, it's just going to reinforce for them that caricature archetype of, you know, you're a crazy person, basically, and you, you believe this and you want other people to believe it to back up. It, it becomes, a, you know, kind of... Uh, um, an allegory to religion. Um, I believe it. Uh, I don't need proof. I know it's true. They're there. Uh, and if you don't believe it, you know you're a fool. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's not like in a life or death issue. <laughs> it's like, you know, we don't really, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of quirk of quirk of the world or something. I don't know what else. How to, just, you know what I'm saying? It's like it's it's just a weird little. Big, weird big thing. I don't know. You know, it's just like a weird sort of hanging thing that's hanging over us. That it's like, no pun intended, because the, <laughs> the UFO. But it's like, but but at the end of the day, everyone just kind of has to go along with whatever the whatever you know happens. Yeah, yeah, that is really what it comes down to sometimes. Um, we need to roll with the punches, be open-minded, but above all else, um, live your life, live as full a life as you can. Uh, make friends, um, fight for what you believe in, and um, don't take shit from people. Um, stand up for your beliefs, um, engage people, but if you stop the flow of um, what's best about living a human life, um, falling in love, having adventures, seeing a great movie, having a wonderful meal, um, 
getting a goal that you had aimed for, you know, buying your own home or yeah. getting a new car. Um, there's a kind of sadness to it. Um, I would hate to, um, I mean, I, I'm sitting here in my office right now and I'm looking at, I'll say one of the damn best UFO libraries in the country. I mean, I've been building it since uh, I got involved. And um, I love books. I'm a big reader. I always was, grew up in a reading family. Um, but I have so many interests in life, so many things that um, I, I passionately uh, enjoy. Um, my roommate, um, as you know, um, is my dad, who is well in his 90s. He is a remarkable guy. He just published a memoir that he began at 95 and finished at 97. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Alan Robbins, a uh, ordinary man, uh, available now in Kindle and regular edition on um, from Amazon. Awesome. Uh, my dad's a great guy. Um, he takes all this stuff seriously, open-minded. But um, he, um, how can I say, um, I, just, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's not fair. What was I saying? This is your, you're, you're talking about your dad, talking about in your office, you're looking at your books. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to, now I'm trying to see how far back I... <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, just that um, uh, I, when I do research, I, I don't, I mean, I go online like everybody does, but um, I don't have to rely on, you know, uh, some alleged thing that somebody says that we don't even know their real name, that they can't back up, that there's no um, fully documented proof. Um, I encourage people to build their, dare I say, analog actual book libraries, and at the same time, um, uh, ah, having a good time. Um, oh, that was it. Yes. Yeah. At, at 97, he still, you know, is living his life. Uh, he's still, you know, um, curious to know what's going to happen the next day. Uh, as he says, I want to see how things turn out. Now, that might keep him going for, you know, another century or two. Who knows? Yeah, no kidding. The way things are going nowadays. Yeah. It's like but the life is a cliffhanger. To, um, I, I know people in the work, and um, many of them dear, wonderful people, um, but who go through periods at least where they take themselves so seriously um, and are so locked into this subject and don't want people um, – it seems like um, the best way uh, to put yourself forward as a serious professional is, um, you know, have your strictly professional website, your strictly uh, UFO-related Facebook page, um, you know, talk about other subjects quietly with friends, but stick to the topic and only associate yourself publicly with that. I mean, if that's um, the defining uh, way that we make our judgments, I lost it years ago with, you know, my thousandth cat video. I'm yeah. such a cat sucker. And, <laughs> you know, the history of, of New York and ancient history and fossils and uh, human psychology and um, – you know, the world is so exciting, even in this crazy era where we don't feel as comfortable traveling to places that I was lucky enough to visit when I was young and, um, you know, fall in love with being a citizen of the world and, and having courage and, you know, traveling for a year on my own without um, knowing how things were going to turn out and getting into adventures and um, some of them a little scary, some of them not. Uh, but if you're afraid to live that part of your life or you feel that um, 
gee, if I show too much of my non-professional, non-UFO-related side, people won't take me as seriously. Oh, God. Well, nobody takes any of this shit seriously outside <laughs> of this, outside of the people in it. Uh. <laughs> it's like, yeah. That's like, you know, that's like a professional wrestler wanting to be admired by his peers. It's like, uh. I guess that's an admirable trait, but at the same time, <laughs> you're still just a wrestler. Yeah, I remember um, when the wonderful, wonderful um, fake documentary uh, – in uh, the defining word of the uh, the brilliant director creator Rob Reiner, the mockumentary of the um, Spinal Tap. Oh yeah, classic. Uh, yes. Um, at the very end, you, you may remember part of the the whole plot is that all of their drummers keep dying mysterious deaths, and um, you know that the police department really didn't even want to look into it because it was well a little too weird. At the end, uh, there is this micro interview with their current final drummer. Uh, and he gives the interview right before he explodes and is just a little bit of like sticky jelly left yeah. on the drummer's seat. And um, uh, Reiner asks him, what's your philosophy of life? And he looks at the camera and he says, quote, unquote, have a good time all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that line. I don't have a good time all the time, but I do whenever I can. And it tempers the seriousness that I, I do live with um, very often in, in my professional work. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. If you're not having fun in this, I mean, come on. It's like the craziest, weirdest thing out there. Yeah. And like yeah. I said, I mean, even if, it, even if it feels like life and death, it's really not, folks, because yeah. not, nothing's really affecting us in that way. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Um, Travis Walton, um, who I, I'm lucky enough to count as a dear friend as well as an esteemed colleague, um, last year, I, I'm sure he said it before, but um, – the question came up about, you know, anxiety, fear of all what all of this is leading to and what's it about. And his thing was, look, if, you know, they were they really are in so many words, um, bad, malignant, evil, um, you know, I, I don't see the signs of it. I mean, nobody's messing with me. Right, um, right. We're yeah. all living their, our lives. And, um, you know, if this is the way it is. Um, we can speculate about um, the deep state, the secret government, uh, all of this until we're blue in the face. But being here right now, um, if things were, you know, as bad as they could be, I, I would probably be uh, about 12 miles from here underneath Lake Cayuga in the salt mine wearing a little brain hat on my head, <laughs> looking straight ahead with no emotion and mining salt for the aliens. Um, that is not the case. And... Um, it's one of the things that gets me down sometimes that people get so over serious in the subject, uh, and I'm one of them. I've certainly been through those periods. And, and yeah, yeah, I have to. Yeah, yeah. But, but, things make you angry or something like that. Yeah, that's for sure. right. But um, there's a, a great Sicilian proverb that I subscribe to, which is "Living well is the best revenge." And we should all be doing our best to live as well as we can. And I don't just mean going out to expensive restaurants or you know, uh, having toys that, uh, you know, the world admires. But being a person of goodwill, um, uh, like Thoreau, um, kindness should be part of our religion. Um, there should always be room for generosity. And um, it's karma. You know, what you do comes back to you, as one of my sister Helen's song lyrics went. Yeah. And um, I live by that. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, 
on, on the sort of note of words of wisdom, in a sense, and kind of like what you're talking about, it's like I was re- I was on reading a completely unrelated sort of message board thing where somebody you're talking about some wrestling topic or whatever, and it was like the person said, "I it, what really pisses me off is that I can imagine a situation where they're saying and blah blah blah," and the next person that responded was like, "You really shouldn't get so upset about <laughs> scenarios that you imagine in your own mind." Well said. I know, and it was like, oh my god, like that could apply to so many, like that could apply to so many instances in my own life where it was like, <laughs> I've never sort of seen it spelled out so clearly before, but it's like, that's pretty true, you know. There's plenty of times when I sort of imagine things that I think might be the case, and it gets me mad, and then it's like, what do you, whether it's UFOs, life, women, whatever, you know, and it's like, what, why are you getting so upset about something that you're imagining might be the, be the case? That's, you know, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. And it's a shame, too. Yeah, yeah. I think it's part of human nature, though. It's like a paranoia thing, but it's like you need to check yourself in a sense and be like, yeah. wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I only imagine, like, maybe, maybe they're not, like, gathering in some secret cabal to keep the UFO secret from us, you know? Yeah. It's like, why am I getting so pissed off about that? Yeah, and if they are, <laughs> Tony Soprano would have said, what are you going to do? Um, yeah, exactly. Watch an episode of The Sopranos, perhaps. Um if you've, again, you know, point made, but um, if you're not living as full a life as you can, whatever you're doing, um, you're missing out on things, and that's a shame. Now, you're a fastidious researcher of all this stuff, uh, as we've established here. You're talking about your giant library and everything. Have you ever, is there anything like outside the realm of UFOs that's sort of, I mean, not like pop culture, I mean like paranormal-wise, that's like captured, like, because I, you know, if some, somebody asked me, I'd be like, I'm a dual major of uh, UFOs and Bigfoot. So it's like I, I, I'm i almost as, as well-versed in, in Bigfoot as I am in UFOs because those yeah. are my two main sort of things. But is there anything, you know, did you ever take like an interest in like, I don't know, psychic mediumship or Bigfoot or ghosts or anything like beyond, um, you know, the UFOs and sort of abduction stuff? Great question. Um, if this were the 80s and you asked me that question uh, I would probably try to work my way around it because one of the ways uh, that skeptics and debunkers had of coming at us was um, oh you're into um, uh, reincarnation and uh, um, you know um, ancient mysteries and ghosts and hauntings as well as UFOs it is a, a rather insulting and obvious strategy to suggest that you are something of an airhead and, um, you know, a, a big-eyed goofball who uh, will be suckered into any strange-sounding thing. Yeah. Um, the answer is absolutely yes. Oh, yes. Um, I had uh, one or two experiences growing up, which I've never been able to compartmentalize and just realize that things um, are not as they seem. Um, I have never had my own ghost or spirit experience, per se, but there are people who I would trust with my life who have. And um, I have seen uh, what I consider um, credible um, uh, evidence to consider um, what's generally called reincarnation um, as factual. I, I never saw it nor do I see it as mystical. Um, I see it as um, like physics. Uh, Let's call it um, the law of transmigration of souls, um, that 100 years from now they'll be able to calibrate and measure in uh, a laboratory. Um, 
the ancient mysteries, um, how things were engineered that we can't even do now, uh, moving, you know, giant stones from X to Y location. And um, 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 Baalbek, uh, the plains of Baalbek, gosh, is that in Saudi or um, Syria? I'm embarrassed to say I forget. Um, there are hewn stones that are um, 60 tons or more. Um, that's nuts. Yeah. Um, when I, I was young, um, I, I was adventurous, and it, as I said before, it was a time when you, you could put a pack on your back, and if you had some bucks in your pocket and could get away from home, um, you could see um, areas of the world um, that would lead you to think more about these things in the yeah. future. Um, I roamed over good parts of Afghanistan all by myself when it was still a peaceful kingdom. Really? Uh, Oh yeah. I, when was I this? Walked, um, uh, early seventies. Jesus. Uh, yeah, I, I roamed around India for almost four months on my own. Um, my God. Uh, taking buses, hitchhiking. Um, at one point, uh, riding an elephant from point A to point B. Not what? A ride, but it was the only way to get where I was going. I, I rode on the roof car, the roof of um, a train for three days, going from Calcutta to uh, a hill station. Um, uh, entry point uh, called Roxall into Nepal. I hiked almost to the Tibetan border, all on my own. Um, went through the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. Um, Iraq, uh, I'm sorry, um, I traveled in Iran twice. Um, and How old were you? Were you like in your 20s? I was 24. Wow. And um, I had the time of my life, and uh, which almost I was separated from almost several times. But I wasn't. I, I Again, I'm not a mystical thinking person. I never felt, you know, I was being watched over by angels. But I, I did remember my mother's bell jar, you know, the, the glass cover that goes on a wooden board that you keep cheese under. And oh, yeah. And there were times I, I felt protected for no rational reason. I guess what I'm trying to say here is, um, you know, walking around India and understanding for the first time in my life as um, a white kid, from uh, grew up in New York and uh, a beautiful little village uh, 30 miles east out on Long Island and you know very about the sophistication of leave it to beaver kind of childhood um, um, happy childhood fairly simple um, a great family um, routine trauma you know my grandpa died my dog died um, yeah, yeah a girl didn't fall in love with me that I fell in love with but it wasn't until I got out into what we'll call the third world that I realized, number one, how fortunate I was and how for so many people that wheel of karma, that idea of coming back is based on not just the wonder of living your life and wanting to live more, but that life is not a fun place to be and you want to get off that wheel so you can come back in a, a state where you are in less trouble or um, um, dealing with, with less harsh problems. Um, you know, seeing um, cremations on the Ganges and pondering the reality of um, the simple fact, Tim, that no matter what, um, we can, you know, uh, live quiet lives or, you know, um, be a Donald Trump, anything <laughs> in between. But we're all here for only a brief amount of time in this life, we know that for sure. And why not make it count? Why not take 
rational risks? Why not fight for what you believe in? Why not be, um, in so many words, one of the good guys when you can be? Yeah. Um, and it strikes me the world could be so different in such a positive place, in such a positive way, not if everybody started to do nice things, but if people simply stopped hurting each other or doing things to destroy. Yeah. Everything would change dramatically, but that, sadly, is not the world we live in. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? Now, you said earlier that there were instances where you... You know that you you almost died or whatever. You thought your life was in danger. Can you yeah. tell us any? Can you tell me one of these stories? Because I know yeah. you're like a masterful storyteller. I never even know about this crazy journey that you went on as a kid. I'm like I'm amazed. I'm just blown away by this because to me it's like I can kind of imagine how you how you did it and everything. But at the same time, it's like it it seems completely like. Uh, Unfathomable, you know. It is unfathomable now. And, yeah. Um, I so, like, just, you just flow to India and just be like, all right, now I want to go to Marrakesh. So, how do oh, I no. get there? Oh, I'm no. just kind of throwing it I, up. I, uh, when I got out of art school, I um, knew I was not ready to uh, take my place in the New York art world. Um, I had gotten my deferment um, from fighting in Vietnam, which is something that I um, uh, had been committed to for years. Uh, Bone spurs. You know, people called us, yeah, right. People called us draft dodgers, but for me, it was always very political. I knew it was a wrong war. I opposed it, and with my parents' backing, although it was heartbreaking uh, when we got close to it, um, they were ready to say goodbye and watch me head for Sweden or Canada. But I I cleared it, and um, what did I do? I got a job on a Norwegian freighter as a common seaman and shipped out. And um, I then just started to drift east with no plan. Um, after months, I, I did everything overland. Um, I, I literally went from New Haven Harbor to uh, the Tibetan border. It took almost half a year, completely overland. Uh, and that included kicking in with a couple of guys in Istanbul and buying a beat-up Volkswagen camper, fixing it up, driving several thousand miles across the Great Salt Desert in Iran <clears throat> and into Afghanistan, and then taking off on my own again. But there came a time when um, I was in Nepal, a country I, I love very much, and um, felt very comfortable, even though it was one of the most foreign places I had ever visited. And after some weeks, I had my sea legs. I you know, had climbed a small mountain with some friends, uh, and gotten bored of visiting the local hashish stores. And you know, the reality was much more exciting than you know, um, getting wasted. And I decided I was going to take a trek to the Tibetan border. I knew that um, Nepal um, described and aptly would, might still describe its, um, its position in the world as a little clay pot between two huge iron kettles, in this case, India and China. Right. And they had to be very careful with those two neighbors or they could get possibly swallowed up like Tibet was. And um, I knew that I could not... I had to stop. I think it was three miles from that border, and it was a good, gosh, I don't know, was it a 15-mile? I couldn't find anybody to go with me, and I decided to do it on my own. Um, At the time, and I still have all my paperwork, I had a special trekking permit. 
which stipulated that I understood that I would be on my own and I would have to be responsible for myself 100%, bring all my own food, uh, medication if I thought I was going to get sick. Um, and, you know, I signed off on it and headed down the road. Um, some days into that trek, I got sick. Um, it wasn't like it was dead of winter or anything. In fact, it would have been May or June uh, of that year, and um, I developed a fever. Uh, uh. I remember finding a place by the side of this completely, you know, raw, untraveled um, trek uh, through, um, you know, looking at the Himalayas and things, and shivering in that sleeping bag, sweating through it, um, too exhausted, take some of my dehydrated food and, you know, mix it with water in my canteen and heat it up and thinking, I'm going to die here. Uh, I'm going to die here. And how how am I about that? I'm so upset for my parents and my sisters and my grandmothers and my cousins and people that love me. And is anybody going to find me here? Should I, you know, use all my strength and get closer to the road? Um, it was... Um, I wasn't even panicking. It was beyond that. It was just... Like a re resignation? Of, well, I guess that would be a word that... Um, um, you know, I guess I thought I was going to live longer. Um, gee, I guess people will remember me because I certainly didn't die in a conventional way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is um, a, a little solace right now. I, I, I wish I hadn't done this. No, um, oh, yeah, regret. Yeah, and um, then a certain amount of time passed. I don't remember it, um, but I woke up a morning or two later, and whatever had been going on with me had, had passed. Um, I felt weak as a little whatever, and but um, I was rejuvenated. Um, I made myself a meal. Uh, I did some reading. I, I walked slower, and I made it to those first signs that say warning. Uh, this area is coming in toward the Tibetan border, and by virtue of the Chinese government, the People's you know Republic of China, you blah 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 and headed back um, with a story that, you know, people ask, um, I'll tell. Um, in the Khyber Pass, um, which separates Afghanistan from Pakistan, it's one of the rawest, most wild, most um, desolate areas I've certainly ever seen. Yeah. It's all rock, and um, since the time of Alexander, uh, it's been fought over. And even in modern times, um, it's so – you remember all the talk uh, when we first went into Afghanistan uh, in um, 02 or 03 about Tora Bora and, you know, the yeah, yeah. army wouldn't even go in there. I was roaming all over there by myself, and um, I wanted to get to Pakistan because it was the uh, only way to get to uh, India. And I got my bus ticket, and about halfway through the Khyber Pass – I'm absent-mindedly looking forward, and I see that there are people in the road, and they are getting uh, more detailed, and they are guys with firearms and see bandoleras of shotgun shells and, uh, uh, you know, scruffy beards, and they stop the bus, and one of them gets on. The other one's just standing around very casually, you know, not even brandishing weapons, but, you know, big pistols tucked into their waistbands and things, smoking cigarettes. And... Um, one of them just walks down the aisle, and he it looked to me like he was just nodding at us all. What he was doing was counting the people on the bus. 
because the bandits who hold the Khyber Pass, or held it at the time, um, with complete okay of the government of Pakistan, and Afghanistan was simply doing what they always do, an exacting tribute from anybody that went through there. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, it, if, if the bus fare was 10 Afghanis, one Afghani went in tribute to the bandits. And I, I remember just being completely gobsmacked that we were all being robbed by bandits in the friggin' Khyber Pass. Well, almost half a year later, I'm heading back west um, ultimately to Afghanistan to hit the Soviet embassy and talk my way into a visa to get into uh, the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War as an American Jew. And um, we're held up again. And I recognize some of the same guys. <laughs> I almost wanted to wave. Did they recognize you? Oh, no. I don't <laughs> think so. They were busy, businesslike, you know, just collecting the tribute, moving forward. Now, that wasn't a life-threatening experience, but... Um, you know, when you're on your own, completely in the middle of nowhere, and this, of course, was at a time when um, to contact somebody telephonically in the United States was a transatlantic call, very expensive. Um, I called my family three times in one year. I called them when I got to Scandinavia. I called them when I found... Um, kind of a, a, a uh, surrogate family in Denmark who were wonderful and took me in for about a month. Um, and then I called them almost a year later when I, I was back in Europe and getting myself ready to head back. I should also say that, um, you know, it sounds like, how did this guy do this? Um, I had about $2,000 in the bank. This is the early 70s. The dollar was king. I have always been able to uh, manage a good budget. And um, I spent, I think, less than $2,000 in one year. But you have wow. to understand that for more than half of that year, I was traveling in Asia where living on a dollar a day was almost um, exorbitant. Um, what I seems amazing to me is, yeah. the, is the logistics of that in that in that time how did you, did you carry all that money with you that's a great question i i because you couldn't use an atm states. or anything like well, i had left the states thinking if i can push this you know um maybe two months or so maybe three months that would be awesome and you know the first period of of that that year uh, a lot of it was spent you know with middle class concerns of what the fuck am i doing i i should be working I should be, you know, developing, um, uh, you know, my reputation as an artist. I, you know, um, I, I should be visiting my grandmother. I should be around for my parents <laughs> and for my sisters. And then at a certain point, it's like, wait a minute. I'm on a journey here, and I'll be back when I'm back. Um, I left the States with several hundred dollars in traveler's checks, um, I think $200 in cash, separate from a hundred brand new single American dollar bills, which oh. once I got to Asia, you'd be amazed what some of those dollar bills opened the world to. And then, you know, I had like um, uh, a savings bond and some stocks that a great aunt had given me when I was bar mitzvahed. And, you know, six months into the trip, eight months into the trip, I would write home uh, and uh, request that my parents – um, you know, send travelers checks or what have you, or uh, a bank uh, transfer. 
it was always to post-restant, which was the term for uh, the post office in the major city that you were heading toward. And uh, okay. things would miss me sometimes, and I learned after the fact, much to my horror, and what I must have put my parents through, bless their hearts, <clears throat> that some of my mail was lost, and there were times where they didn't hear from me for months. In fact, um, oh, God. there will be a book on this. Um, Good, I've yeah, this is fascinating. Work, and it is... Um, it is a hell of a story and, and one that I'm looking forward to telling um, in detail. But um, my my dad saved every letter, every postcard. That oh, nice. Had. Yeah. See, because that's and, the other thing I was thinking of as you're telling me the story. It's like, it's like nowadays – the, if you were if you were that age now, it's like you would feel compelled to document all this shit on, <laughs> you know, Facebook, we we follow you the whole way through. I would be yeah. twittering away uh, yeah. along with our president. No, in fact, I kept notebooks. Um, I kept literally every piece of you know bureaucratic minutia, every map um, that I had. Um, I also uh, took several hundred photos. That sounds like so few in a year, but this was camera film, um, some of which uh, was priceless. And at one point, I sent some back to the States. It was there when I got back uh, a year later, and then I had it developed. I sent other film back to the States, including images uh, I captured in Afghanistan in the pre-war days and Iran uh, under the Shah that vaporized. They're gone. Um, but I have um, those photographs, but the letters. Uh, for years, my dad would say, uh, you want to see those letters you sent? Nah, that's the past. I could care less. And maybe 10 years ago or so, I said, I'll take a look. And that very first sentence of that first aerogram shot me right back onto that freighter. I ended up transcribing everything, you know, 50 pages, single-spaced or so. So um, I've I've got you know, the modus to tell um, the story in terms of uh, documentation. But none of this was planned. I had no idea where I was going uh, or to some degree even why. Um, I mean, I, I now understand myself better at that time and um, understood that I was looking for essentially myself. And um, to have put myself in situations where I know I could be self-reliant. I would say that uh, the most important things in my life that have assisted me in becoming the person I became and somebody who I'm, I, I like, I, yeah. I like myself. I, I've worked on being me for a long time, um, was going into uh, therapy for about almost seven years with the former first assistant of um, Dr. Wilhelm Reich. Um, the fact that I was lucky enough to have a, a, an absolutely sensational family. Um, yeah. You know, we're all neurotics, but um, a lot of love and a lot of support, wonderful sisters, great parents, cousins, uh, wonderful friends, and taking this dare yeah. that I dared myself uh, that, you know, if my then soon-to-be ex-girlfriend had just said, I've changed my mind, uh, let's stay together, um, I would have canceled that trip. And, um, you know... Uh, Who knows? Yeah, that's a real... Yeah, that's a... Until yeah. the night before, I, I turned in my passport to uh, the master of the MS Saab in uh, the uh, New Haven Harbor in Connecticut and was a member of the Norwegian Merchant Marine. Um, I I could have been talked out of it easily, but there's a perfect example. Um, t- 
take those dares in life, even if it's some little weekend trip to some place you've never been. I know that one of the reasons I've built this pathetically awful uh, way to earn a living um, <laughs> that it has allowed me uh, a lot of travel experiences, opportunities to meet people I would have never met otherwise. And UFOs, UFOs, whatever the story is with them, uh, whatever contributions um, people will look back on and say that I made to the work, for me, the biggest payoffs has been the friends I have made, the adventures I have had, um, the situations I've been put in to um, challenge myself to grow from, uh, the the fights that I've been in, whether I've won or lost them. Uh, I, I realize sometimes with some sadness that... Um, um, there are people who, with all the reasons that are so easy to understand, would rather devote a good part of their life to building uh, equity, security, all that stuff that part of me should have been doing. Um, and then finding out that, gee, I'm fairly getting along now. What do I want to do with everything I have? Yeah. You know, I can take a cruise or something like that, or lots of them. I can travel in style and comfort, but there is something about being in the middle of nowhere, thousands of miles from home, with a pack on your back, relying entirely on yourself until you, you know, connect up with your next group of friends or a traveling pal for, uh, you know, a, a day or a week or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, of rolling with the punches and of um, using it all to appreciate how fortunate you are rather than, you know, comparing yourself to people in your same culture who are better off than you. Um, yeah, it's ufology, amazing. the study of this phenomena is very important to me. Um, but as I said, it's not something I, I love. Um, it's an obsession, and I resented for years. I still have some resentment, in fact, that it derailed my primary dream from early childhood because I was fortunate enough to know what I wanted to do when I was five years old, six years old. I was um, a very precocious young artist with a lot of encouragement from the grown-ups around me and grandparents and parents who would take me to the great museums in New York. Um, you know, oil painting lessons when I was eight years old. Little did I know uh, that that $10 a week really was a, a major chunk of my, my parents' weekly budget. Um, I am just so thankful for so many opportunities that I've had, but it's also um, created a, a certain dynamic that I would encourage anybody to do anything they can to do where you are so involved in living your life that those numbers clicking away that are associated with, um, as we say, how old you are, yeah. become more and more like an existential joke. Uh, my father on a bad day will say, you know, Pete, I'm getting old. And I think to myself, yes, compared to a layer of tertiary coal or a brontosaurus, you are getting old. <laughs> but for many people who are almost 98, they would say they are old. And uh, my sister and I and our friends kind of marvel at that attitude because it's real for him. He is, you know, it's all catching up with him, and who knows how long we'll have him. Um, but he is still getting old. He is not old. And... Um, I'd like to be in that place when I wake up one morning and find out I died the night before. Um, life should be an adventure. And unfortunately, in part because the world has become a more dangerous place, 
that adventure has to be uh, tailored a bit, rationalized. But um, I, I'm one of the luckiest people I know in that respect. Yeah, no, I mean you're one of the uh, most content people I know. I can say that for sure. You know, you, you're, you're not like uh, there's not a lot of anxiety swirling around you. If that makes any sense. A lot of a lot of a lot of people, uh, yeah, a lot of people have had this sort of anxiousness in this field. But you, you've always sort of struck me as this like uh, calming influence. Well, thanks. <laughs> I, somebody made a post on Facebook a couple of months ago that I just roared, and um, it touches you at a certain point uh, in your life, and um, you're getting there at some point. And it was, um, I hate it when I see an old person, and then I realize I went to high school with them. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I resent it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've con- I've confronted many of those sort of weird scenarios. Yeah, where you see something on TV and they like talk about how someone how how old someone is, whether it's an athlete or something like that, and they're like 35 or something, and it's like mm-hmm. what? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> well, let's face it. Some people are kind of born old. Um, in, old souls, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, worried about things that you shouldn't be worrying about for decades, for goodness sakes. You should be, you know, living your life, enjoying it, um, being in love, fighting battles, you know, building something. uh, And, you know, they're just, it's not a a bad thing. And like the whole grasshopper and the ant, you know, um, one is playing around and the other one is building equity. Um, I, I would never be the kind of person that would say, if I had it to do all over again, I'd do it the same. I think anybody that would say that is legally insane. Yeah. Um, or, in fact, that rare one in a million person who has had an ideal life. I would have started by, um, even though I, I never followed sports, well, not since I was 11 in an organized way, um, I remember, you know, flipping baseball cards in in the 50s with my friends in elementary school and um gosh, I wish I would have saved them and my comic books. I and then invested in gold when it was 125 and then bought into this new company called Microsoft in 1979 and I would have been richer than Bill Gates. But it doesn't work like that. You can play with those things in your mind, but if you ever let them get to you, oh you're god, lost. yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's something yeah, that's another sort of life lesson I've learned over time. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you cannot obsess over decisions made. It's nah. like there's really nothing you can do about it. You know? No, <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. You know, we talk about getting older, and like we were saying about our sort of like uh, our departed friends, and how it's you know who knows what we're gonna see. Uh, well, you know, in, in our lives. Um, I mean, look at. I mean, I, I I hesitate to even bring it up, but it's like look at. You know, when we first met in 2004, we were like, look it, you guys are going to be talking again, like, almost 15 years from now, and the country's going to be on, like, it's going to feel like the country's going to be on the precipice of a civil war. Good Lord. Because Donald Trump is the president. Yeah. Like, we, we wouldn't, we would have believed the aliens would have landed before we would have believed that. I, as a New Yorker, um, I, I, I agree in, in overdrive, and um, it's, it's a reminder that um, no matter what we think, no matter what we believe, no matter what we're working toward, everything, everything, whether it's on a very interpersonal level or internationally, can change on a dime in a second. So uh, as we used to say in the 60s, be here now, certainly as much as possible. 
the past is gone. The future doesn't exist yet. The only thing that really exists is the moment in terms of our experience as human beings other than our thought experience. So embrace it fully. Um, I love reflecting back on certain parts of my past. Um, absolutely wince at other parts. I, I look forward to all kinds of interesting things in the future and, and know that they will or won't happen. Uh, classic example is mm, my usual routine as a self-employed writer, uh, photographer, artist, is um, toward the latter part of the year uh, and then in the first months of the new year, work hard to um, you know get your speaking jobs, line up um, articles that you can sell, different appearances, things that you can do to pay your bills, ideally doing things that mean something to you. But when you can't get that work, then doing it by working at other things. Um, I have had friends who I know are so principled in a way and so dedicated to the work that if they didn't have the work, um, they just stopped and um, money wasn't coming in. For me, um, you know, being uh, um, a graduate of the finest art school in the country, even though I'm not a practicing artist now, although I look forward to moving back into that over the next few years uh, and and moving forward with, I've been a passionate photographer for over 40 years, but I've never exhibited my work. Um, I do it for my own satisfaction, for my friends, but I, I've got some remarkable images from more than 30 countries and, you know, uh, uh, coming in toward, uh, you know, more than 40 years. And um, I would hate to think that uh, I would turn a corner and, um, you know, find that, oh, gosh, um, gee, I, I guess I'm not going to do any of that stuff and life is just going to be kind of boring right now. And, uh, you know, I could never see myself, for example, even if I had um, the means to not have to work again. I The idea of retiring, uh, I think it's wonderful for some people. For me, I have so many things that interest me. Mm. Why would I ever want to stop looking into them or taking part of them? Um, I look at you know, friends and colleagues. A perfect example is Stanton Friedman. Right. Um, Stan's, I guess, 82 or 83 now. He is still kicking major ufological butt. Um, he is an extraordinary lecturer. Um, he loves what he does. He's one of a handful of people in the history of the field who has made a living at it. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew Zachariah Sitchin to some degree, and he was working right up until he died at 90. Um, Bud certainly um, had to stop before he was 80 when he died because the cancer made it very difficult for him. But he worked as long as he could, like good character actors. Um, you do this because, yes, um, if you're lucky, it pays your bills, but because you love doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I've always had a real affinity in my heart for sort of the folks that have been in this for such a long time, you know, yeah. the legends, if you will. Yeah, and, you know, another one was, um, again, our, our friend Jim Mars. Yeah. Um, I, I'll say met Jim many years before I met him. Uh, a lot of people in ufology or the conspiracy communities don't even realize what an unbelievably crea um, courageous newspaper reporter this man was. Um, I'm old enough to remember the Kennedy assassination, and um, it broke my heart. You know, I was a little kid who um, hero-worshipped this, you know, young, vital guy who 
like my dad had fought in World War II and had a beautiful wife and this lively family. And when he went, a lot of, uh, you know, it was it was just like losing a <coughs> member. And um, the information that was coming to us over the next years about the assassination was so mixed. And it was Jim who began to break it open on a whole other level with a book that every one of your listeners should read called Crossfire. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've got a a, a, a good, uh, not a huge, but a good library of, of material on um, the assassination and, and, and related events. And that book absolutely knocked me flat. And it wasn't until years later when uh, I was in Denver at the uh, one of my favorite bookstores in the country, the Tatted Cover, and in you know going over the spines in the UFO books and just whoa, wait a minute, Jim Mars wrote a UFO book? <laughs> uh, Fang pulled that out, Alien Agenda, of course, being a very self-involved person, immediately went to the index to see if I was in it. <laughs> that's the, yes, if you know, you know you've been in ufology for a while, if that's this, I've done it myself, so yeah. And I was, and it was a, oh, very, um, it was a very flattering remark, and some years later we had the opportunity to meet in a, in a great way some uh, very well-heeled uh, New Yorker who was into uh, the subjects that Jim wrote about brought him to New York. I don't remember how I got invited, but I, I remember being in a very, very fancy uh, Fifth Avenue apartment looking out on Central Park uh, from a high floor with maybe 15 people at a cocktail party. And Jim, uh, immediately uh, we uh, uh, connected, being the same height and wearing similar hats, <laughs> and um, never being shy of, of tearing somebody's ears off by trading stories into the dawn. Um, had a lot of fun with him over the years, and uh, again, uh, miss him terribly, but there's a guy who lived his life. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I would hope that he had no regrets by the time he moved on. Uh, he was an inspiration to a lot of us, and... In our culture now, um, I am concerned increasingly um, with not just younger people, but my concern is more for them because, you know, I, I, I live in, in rural central New York State surrounded by working farms uh, with deer and foxes and other wonderful creatures around the house, but I'm a city kid. And it still kind of blows my mind. I'm half a dozen miles from one of the greatest college towns in America, Ithaca, New York. Mm -hmm. Back in my hometown of New York City, usually once a month unless I'm on the road. And that archetype of sitting on a subway and looking across at ten people, and eight of them are staring at these little handheld devices. Oh, yeah. Um, one's asleep and one's reading a newspaper. Um, that some people are literally losing the ability to carry on a one-to-one, face-to-face conversation and forget about debating a subject. Um, the idea, cursive writing is disappearing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, cra it's crazy, yeah. It's very upsetting. And the idea that um, for bibliophiles like me, who, um, you know, the Holy of Holies is holding like a manuscript, you know, or a, a book that uh, was signed or notated by a famous person, an actual physical book, that a manuscript is just a bit of digital information, that um, books per se, I, I love the idea of um, electronic books. I still don't have one. Um, 
my brother-in-law, um, I remember when he got his Kindle, and I said, how many books are you know on that? He said, all of them. <laughs> Great, Tim. Very good. 1,100. And I thought, what the, this is amazing. You know, yeah. maybe it is all back-engineered alien technology, this whole digital thing. So, uh, another wonderful subject I used to uh, go back and forth with, uh, with Bud Hopkins, who felt very strongly that, yes, when we first started to hear that term, Back engineering uh, captured a lot of our imaginations. I think it kicked in with the, uh, the when Bob Lazar became a public person, uh, that particular phrase. Um, but we both agreed, we human beings at our best, um, when things are optimum and we're working together, um, as my old boss used to say, anything the, man of my, the, the mind of man can conceive, it can achieve. Mankind, that is, as opposed to men. Um, and who knows, maybe uh, fiber optics and the Internet and, um, uh, you know, your iPhone 6 is all a product of back engineering, or we did it on our own, damn it, and we don't need no, uh, you know, aliens to do it. Uh, it's an unanswered question for anybody but the insiders that know uh, because they cracked it, um, or they know it because it wasn't cracked. Uh, we can debate this, of course, you know, forever. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting. But these, you know, these devices that were beyond luxuries to us, you know, a moment ago in time, that are now ultimate necessities. Right, um, right. Yeah. I think they're rewiring, you know, brains, and in a few generations, not only will you know people's thumbs have evolved in a slightly different way. Yes, yes, um, yes. But we will be dealing with an epidemic of brain cancers from people holding these radioactive devices so close to their heads from the time that, in some cases, they're toddlers and their parents just to get off their back. Here, hold my phone. And oh, I'm God. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I find that inc- incredibly disturbing. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like an old fogey, but... Yeah. <laughs> you know, do I'm in agreement with you. Yeah, no, it's 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 the whole... Yeah, the whole the whole sort of transformative nature of this thing. Uh, again, going back to like you and I, I mean, we met back in 2004. It was like there were cell phones then, but it wasn't like this. You know, people weren't. I don't think I, I think if we could take if we could like remote view ourselves back to that bar in the hotel that night, That's those two nights, and, and look around, I bet you like there wouldn't be a single person on a phone like they are now because it weren't wasn't like that back then. I I remember. Um, um, I, we're going back now, um, probably 20 years or so, um, when I, I did my first major trek ar- around England after visiting repeatedly um, working on the Rendlesham case, that um, going into a bar uh, with a number of British friends and acquaintances who would then take out their phones and put them on the table. Um, I thought, oh, this is so hokey. Um, uh, Larry Warren and I, who I wrote Left at East Gate with, uh, we had been given a loaner phone by our publisher. And my first thought when he gave us the phone when we were about to commence on a month-long 15-city speaking tour was, what the hell am I going to do with this? This is just, you know, a bourgeois joke. And, of course, within 24 hours, um, I could we couldn't live without it. Right, right, yeah. But at that time, it was just, gee. You know, it was just a phone, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I lived in England in, in, two, in the year 2000, and it was like, that was, yeah, I was taken aback by that, too, because they adopted the, 
the mobile, as they say over there. They, <laughs> they had it like that. It was kind of like how it became here, where it was like everybody had yeah. a mobile. You had to have a mobile phone. And it was like I, I thought I, I'm living in the future, and at the same time, yeah, yeah, that's how I felt when I got back to America because I went out and got one, and I'm like, oh, you don't have a mobile? What are you? <laughs> I'm never going to need one of these, of course, you know. But um, I get that. Uh, I understand why some people really like them. Yeah, right. <laughs> As I look at my little flip phone from 1942. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just remarkable. It does make you wonder, like, uh, in a way, it's like, you, you know, we're talking about, like, is it reverse engineer technology or the product of man? It's like, sometimes I wonder in a way, it's like, if it's some kind of, like, some kind of, like, virus, like, technological virus in a way, or it's like, once we... We, you know, an alchemy, like a, like a technological alchemical sort of like virus in a sense, where it's like we stumbled upon, we, we unleashed something that we really shouldn't have. In a funny <laughs> way, um, you know, especially for uh, my my dear friends, um, whose major preoccupation in life at this moment is their Second Amendment rights, and um, I, I, I've certainly uh, enjoyed shooting firearms. I've been a gun owner. Uh, I, I keep a rifle in the house. But it's always been, you know, a um, the zen of hitting the mark since um, I shot my first rifle when I was in the Boy Scouts. Um, and, you know, taking responsibility for knowing how to use another power tool or something. Um, but I, it is a little like a virus in that um, George Orwell or um, 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 the great visionaries of how things might turn out if they weren't going well. Forget about having, you know, your guns taken away. Um, we've already lost the war in a way. Um, we, we, the great majority of people in this country, um, can't live without their cell phones. And it, they would trade almost anything for, you know, I, I have to have access to the Internet. I have to have my cell phone. Um, I need this new technological doohickey here. Um, I've got some cool clothes. I've got a job that I, I sort of like. Um, I can go out, you know, and have a drink or a nice restaurant meal when I want to, and I live in a nice part of town. I've got it all going for me. Um, whatever's going on in the world is going on in the world. I can't affect it, but I look pretty cool. Um, you know, I, maybe I'll get laid tonight. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just traded my new phone in. Um, life's good, um, sadly and frighteningly. Um, yeah, uh, it's happened already. It's been we've been co-opted. Yeah. And um, for some people, I, I don't think I think it's too late to wake up. For other people, um, you don't have to go into a paranoid frenzy to understand that this is part of the way the world is. But it doesn't have to include you. Yeah, exactly. You know, as with all things, it's like there needs to be some moderation with this mm. stuff. You know, it's the young. It's yeah, it's like get off my lawn. It's, it's the young people. It's the young people I worry about, Peter. It's the young people. <laughs> you young people today. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it makes you wonder, like whether because uh, I, I read an article the other day. I read the headline. I didn't read the article. I read the headline that said, you know, AI has replaced aliens as the. And this was like from a mainstream outlet, like a new, uh, you know, Newsweek or um, Wired or something, where it was like AI has replaced aliens as like the looming invasion threat in in pe- some people's minds. And it's like it's kind of true in a sense, where it's yeah, like it is this whole our whole civilization has been like enveloped by technology. 
Well, and it's it's now um, um, it's been around for a while, um, but it's now going into a, a, another hyperstate that concerns me, which is, you know, people used to make jokes about these absolutely pathetic looking rubber blow up, you know, sex dolls. Oh, now, you know, you've only to, you know, uh, be on Facebook to see that we're approaching a time, if we're not there already, probably we are in Japan and uh, a number of other first world countries where there is an availability of these, you know, sexually available robots of both sexes. Yeah. And for me, it is one of the most heartbreaking commentaries and thoughts of our time that, oh, gosh, I don't want to date. You know, I'll get rejected. Um, I, I think... You know, certain words define themselves um, to screw somebody. That's very romantic. <laughs> yeah. Hook up. You know, um, is sex without obligations um, fine? Great. Um, I was horny as hell when I was in my 20s, and, you know, it was the 60s, so I was doubly lucky. But at the same time, there are people who now will ultimately, as we move forward in time, um, not be that interested in pursuing an actual, you know, core relationship that is built on passion and mutual attraction and mutual interest and love and working through differences. It's so it's just so much to do. It takes so much work. Yeah, they'll just get a sex robot and then they'll be exactly, like, exactly, yeah, exactly. There's only you know, so much time in the day, man. I don't have I time to go weed, out. <laughs> I got my legal weed and my sex spot and uh, my <laughs> yeah. speedos, and uh, I'll see you next week. You know, that's um, I'm, and I'm only half joking. I, it's an oh no, I can totally see it. Yeah, on another level. And again, um, this is part of the world we live in, but it doesn't have to include you. Right. Exactly. Well, chances are, you know, for better or for worse, it probably won't because the thing it won't include <laughs> you, or, you or I because. Because we can't afford the really high, you know, <laughs> yes. anyway. Exactly. Well, the glacial pace of all this, I had, you know, I had, I, I was talking to uh, Dr. Tyler Cokechon back in January about this in yeah. a sense where it's like he's a he's a scientist, like a legit scientist um, in Arizona, and, and and I always give him shit because he's a you know he's a legit scientist, not from the paranormal world, and it's like yeah. Tyler, you 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 scientists are always promising us this shit and it never <laughs> happens. I'm like, where's I'm like, look, dude, if I drink too much and I get old and I need a new liver, I can't go down to the Home Depot of medicine and get a liver like they told me I was going to in the 80s. It's not right. And where the <laughs> hell are our jetpacks? Yeah, exactly. I've been waiting for that since I was nine years old, and I am pissed off. Right. I, told, I said to him, like, all I ever heard back when I first got into this field like 15 years ago was how nanotechnology was going to transform everything and stem cells were going to be like the future. It's like nothing's really <laughs> – Nothing's they changed, still man. It ain't our future. It's the next future. Right, right. It's like they're always promising us shit that's like 100 years ahead of our time. It's like, what, what good does that do me, dude? But you know, it's funny. At the same time, uh, looking back um, on my childhood and remembering stories that, you know, my dad told me, like all dads, and my grandma told me, um, I was born before the Wright brothers flew and I lived to see men on the moon kind of thing. That's true, yeah. I, I think um, right now, yeah, I, I was born in the age of tube radios and, um, you know, a completely analog world. And for me, I fell in love with the world of film probably by the time I was about eight years old, in part because there was a wonderful 
um, uh, real worship of a, a television program, certainly in New York at the time uh, when I was growing up, called Million Dollar Movie. And what they did that was different than anything else was they chose a film, uh, usually a great black and white classic, and they played it every single day during the week and like twice on Sundays. And so I had a chance not just to see great films, but to really, you know, memorize dialogue and falling in love with them and thought, if I ever really make it, I'm going to have a special room in my house, a screening room. I'm going to have one of those big Bell and Howell 16 millimeter projectors, even better than the one that we have at Hewitt School. And I'm going to have metal racks with, you know, film canisters that I can thread through. And it never even dawned on me. It never even entered my imagination that a video cassette would come into existence and that real regular people could own a machine where you could put like a big tape thing in plastic in the machine and record something from your television. It was absolutely <laughs> yeah. outrageous. And, um, of course, now you can do even more. But... Um, my dreams didn't even include that stuff then. Yeah. And now, of course, we have things that none of us would have dreamt of when we were kids, but we're still waiting for more practical things. Um, you think of the tremendous amount of waste that our culture generates. I mean, it would break your heart. Uh, the amount of food that's wasted in this country. The fact that when I was growing up, every single town had shops where you brought almost anything to be repaired. Um, I'm old enough to remember um, an old truck that used to roll through our little <clears throat> village um, uh, down the street that I lived on every week or so, and it would ring a bell. And it was a guy who sharpened your scissors and sharpened knives. Um, um, you didn't throw away something when it broke. You either learned how to fix it yourself or you brought it to a repair place. But over time... Um, we have been, you know, sleepwalked into this age of disposability. And, you know, there are now areas all over the world that we might as well call, you know, zones of national sacrifice. Um, there is a thing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, bigger than several Texases, made up of oh, trash, yeah. plastic. Um, this is a nightmare. This is insane. This is... Um, this is what happens when we're not good shepherds. Uh, and whether or not any of our friends believe or don't believe in climate change or whether or not we contribute to it, and the fact that many people do not accept that human beings have contributed to it to me um, is is infuriating and very saddening. Um, yeah. Uh, but that, again, you don't have to even do anything good to make the world a better place. You just have to stop doing things that are hurtful, that are destructive, that are negative, uh, like buying water bottles instead of getting, you know, a... Oh, one of those know, metal ones. Yeah, and, um, you know, uh, being responsible for not dumping, you know, 10,000 uh, disposable bottles into our biosystem. Yeah, those like Keurig cups. Awesome. They said they could stretch those Keurig cups, like, around the planet after, like... Uh... A month, a month of all the people that uh, use it. Probably to the moon by this point. Yeah. Um, it's, it's maddening. And every time I see a post where somebody somewhere, and often like a high school kid in Africa or India or something, has thought 
up and created a simple device that you can build for a modest amount of money that um, will let you generate power to your yurt or, um, you know, to personally desalinate water. Um, we are going to be fighting wars in this country within, uh, within this world within a decade over water. And the fact that major multinational corporations often that we associate with the most innocent things, for me, the word Nestle growing up meant hot chocolate. Um, Coca-Cola, you know, that very popular sugar water around the world. These companies are emblematic of major, major multinationals that are buying up springs and natural water sources. Um, corporations are people, as we know, and um, the sooner that gets changed, the better, and like taking money out of politics. Uh, good luck with that one, although I think it's one of the few hopes of recovering what is left of our uh, Democratic Republic um, that is in tatters at this point. Yeah, I mean... But not to give up. Um, again, uh, live your own life um, by um, ethical rules uh, and um, get a kick out of contributing rather than, you know, taking the piss out of people or, um, you know, being a sarcastic bastard and just having nothing good to say or do. Um, you're either a positive force in this planet or you're not. And in terms of the subject that brought us together and brings us together tonight, again, truly anomalous UFO phenomena and its implications for humanity. Uh, there is a still a fight out there, and it's an important one to take part in, to um, do what you can to clarify the picture, or I realize for myself after hundreds of talks before large and small venues, um, hundreds of appearances, and I'll say that easily hundreds, uh, over the past 40 years on, on radio and television and documentaries and things, that I, um, one of the things I do best as a lecturer, as a writer, is kind of 101 stuff. I am rarely involved in cutting-edge debates on the nature of what creatures from Alpha Centauri look like or um, who is truly behind, you know, uh, the uh, secret government. Um, I couch a lot of my work in post-war history. I, as often as possible, draw upon the kind of evidence that you would want to see in a court of law, whether it's um, an authentically declassified document or um, results of uh, a professional analysis of organic material that's come in contact with some phenomenological situation and has been changed or transformed or altered in the course of it. I kind of continue to feel that um, one of the things that I should continue to focus on is being that person who is just doing their best to get not preaching to the choir, although most of my audiences um, are, you know, there because they're interested in the subject, and I continue to explore ways to broaden that, but to get them into the foyer and through that first door where they can come away from reading something that I've written or hearing something that um, uh, a talk I've given and say, you know, that wasn't bad. Um, I'm still equivocal about the subject, but I'm a little, I feel a little more secure now. Um, those documents were real, or um, you know that 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 physical analysis was real, and 
in the way that I was taught, I had three major mentors. Bud was the best known, um, uh, a retired um, Hungarian Army staff officer named Komen Vodkovetsky, um, who was a uh, in charge of photo reconnaissance for the Hungarian military during World War II. Um, extraordinary cop. We can go past the thing, so don't worry about that. Okay. Um, Pete Mazzola, who died much too young, was a tough, no-nonsense New York City police detective who was also a crack UFO investigator, and along with Coleman and Bud, um, taught me to investigate this subject in as pragmatic and objective a way as possible. And please don't, for any of your listeners, don't misunderstand me. Um, We're all feeling a different part of the elephant in this work. And I think that there are many people who are on to important things that are more spiritual, that are more ethereal than um, I am. My specialty is nuts and bolts and triangulating around evidence. If you can find uh, a documented account that supports uh, evidence that we see in a photograph, that supports a, you know, a, a physical analysis of material that is backed up by authentically declassified documents, Build your case like a court attorney and present it uh, as factually and as clearly as you can, um, as illustrated as you can. But, you know, a good talk and, you know, radio is a perfect medium. Um, I'm a storyteller. It's just the stories I deal in. Um, I don't, you know, they're true. And yeah. I hope to do that um, to some degree until I'm not here anymore. Hey, man, yeah. I mean, I think you're going to be around for a while, I hope so. You may be stuck with me for a while. Just don't go try backpacking through Afghanistan again. Not a, no, no. I, I'm glad <laughs> I did it when I did, but yeah, no, I, I, I'd love to return on a certain level, but the Afghanistan that I want to return to only is exists to gone. my mind and mind yeah. of other people. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. Uh, now, where can folks, you know, find out more from you and uh, find out what you're doing next? Well, um, I do have a Facebook you have a hub? Page. Um, I have a, uh, a long-neglected uh, website, peterrobbinsny.com, uh, uh, um, that I keep meaning to update. But uh, you can always visit me on Facebook. Um, I keep removing friends so I can add new friends, having hit that embarrassing point of being what they laughingly call on Facebook a public person. Oh, God, I just went through and called like a thousand people off of my thing because it's like they – Whoa! Well – I, yeah, I had uh, you know, I, I had like half a half of yours. I had like two thousand, maybe twenty five hundred, and I cut it down to about a thousand because it's like I don't know if you know this. They pivoted off of news to like I know I've noticed, and they're like, now we we just want to connect you to your friends, and it's like that's no. the <laughs> with all due respect, folks. It's me. like yeah, they picked the worst time for it because it's like. Immediately then this shooting happened, and now I'm just inundated with, like, gun debates all day on there. And, both. and um, it's, it's, it, again, it's taking up all the oxygen in the room, and there is no quick resolve. I'm sorry to say I think our country is at a spot that it has not been since 1860, uh, before the war between the states, or right. my friends down south say the war of northern aggression. Um, I knew even as a kid that... The term civil war was an oxymoron. (laughs) Uh, Where can people connect with me next? Um, If you're in New York State, I'm going to be not even giving a talk, but doing um, a reading, trying to stretch out the definition of ways to uh, communicate uh, on this subject for 
one of my favorite regional um, UFO groups. It's called the uh, UFO Meetup Group in Rochester, New York, run by the amazing Cookie Stringfellow, resident oh, ufologist nice. being uh, Rich Dolan. I'll be there on Wednesday the 14th. I may still be some space. Um, the weekend after that, the um, I guess it's 16th, 17th, uh, Friday and Saturday, I will be speaking and on panel discussions at the Whole Life Expo at the New Yorker Hotel um, in uh, Manhattan. I will be at the Pine Bush UFO Conference in New York State here in um, May. I'll be back uh, in uh, Roswell in July, I'm hoping. Uh, looking good for Norway in August. Wow, Norway. Uh, a new UFO conference coming at us in New York State in Syracuse in October. Wow, Syracuse, that's my old stomping ground. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we can use all of the UFO conferences we can get here. Absolutely. In the East, and I'm, I'm very uh, pleased to see a growing number of them, as we know, in New England. Yeah. But um, you'd think New York doesn't have a UFO conference, New York City doesn't have a UFO conference. Uh, unfortunately, the main reason for that is people dedicated enough to put in the time, but venues are very expensive. That's what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, it must be. So um, uh, I post um, all you know future talks and appearances um, on my Facebook page, and uh, we'll try to get back into the professional habit of doing it on my website. Um, but, yeah, a couple of places you can see me and hang, and would love nice. to either reconnect with you or, uh, you know, uh, if you have questions you want to ask me in person, great. Um, you can send me messages via Facebook um, if you're a regular listener to Tim um, and you want to get in touch with me, send him the message. He'll forward it to me, and I will get back to you. It, I'm, I try to get back to everybody that writes to me um, or contacts me. It's impossible, and um, I, I'm sorry to say I, I I just can't do it. Yeah, no, it's hard. I'm I mean, better than most. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably better than I am. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mentioned this to somebody the other day where it's like, uh, folks, and I, I mean, I, everyone's there is different, I guess, in a sense, but it's like my best advice to anybody like sending an email or a message like that is like some people write like six giant, par- you know, a six giant paragraph long message, and it's like some of them really long for the answers and are absolutely sincere, which is... Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, it's like, I don't know how you feel, but it's like I almost, I always feel like I have to you know, put the same amount of effort back into responding to them. And then next thing I know, I look up and it's like a year, 18 months ago so that I, I you know... Uh, the fact is, I, I, I joke with my friends sometimes that I could have written as many books as um, Nick Redfern if I didn't respond to all the mail that I get. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Email and, and, and Facebook related and, and, and from other sources. Um, I value uh, human contact. I try to be a <laughs> friend or acquaintance, but um, I, I do need to be a little more disciplined as I move forward um, as a writer, no question about it. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, I want to uh, thank you for everything. You know, I like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, I really wouldn't have gone on this journey, I think, if not for your friend, you know, your friendliness at that event and, um, you know, and your your openness and just uh, gregarious nature. I, I mean, I don't know what the words to use. It was just like, here I was, some chomp at a UFO event, and like you were one of the speakers, and you treated me just like someone whose opinion and thoughts were worth something. And it's they like, are. and they are. Uh, thank and you, man. And, and that, yeah, and that was kind of welcome. what gave me thank the inspiration, you. where it was like, hey, my, 
my my opinions have merit in this crazy field, so well, I pre- really appreciate it. And the fact is, um, you know, I look at the body of work you've generated. Yeah, you know, you haven't been spending your time writing books at this point in your career, but you have hauled ass. What is it, nine years, ten years that you have been on the air? Um, that's extraordinary. You have reached hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people over the years, and that I had something to do with triggering that, for me, is its own pay. Again, um, we joke about this stuff, but what's the value in this world? Uh, making a positive um, difference is part of it. As yeah, well, yeah, for sure. Bills. So thank you as well. And um, I really enjoyed being back. And while um, I am sorry on a certain level that, that you are moving out of the realm of radio broadcasting, I know you will keep contributing. I, I look forward to seeing your writing, to um, continuing to build our friendship, and you know, see you around the campus. I'm sure a couple of times this coming year. But um, I've really enjoyed the past two hours. And holy moly, talk about missing time! We blew through that, didn't we? I know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you don't have to worry about me, man. Uh, you know, I've, 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 you know, sort of, I've run through my, this all through my head, I guess. You know, especially lately because I'm sort of really getting close to the end, and it's like, yeah. Yeah. you know. My hero was Bob Dylan, dude, and he was like folk, uh, electric, <laughs> you know. He was like a like a gypsy traveler in the early '70s, and then he was like in the in the gospel scene, and then he got in the '80s. And you know, to me, it's like I have a thing on my message board where he said, you know, an artist is always in the state of becoming, yeah. and it's like I need to evolve and change, and you know, get into the next era of whatever I'm doing, and I'll still. You know, I'll still grab – I can still pick up the phone and do a show whenever I want. You know what I'm saying? It's just like I'm never going right. to be – I don't want to be beholden to sort of uh, the method by which we've been doing it for like the last decade. So. It's so interesting on a closing note that of all of the uh, creative artists of our time, you, you mentioned Bob Dylan. Um, he certainly was one of my heroes too, but in a completely different context. It began with that first – folky song of his to his protest songs to that electrifying moment in popular culture history where he plugged that goddamn guitar in uh, um, uh, and blew all of our minds and then continued on. Um, For me, he is the poet laureate of my generation and my interest started to wane after he recovered from his motorcycle accident and got mellow. Um, Yeah. I I wanted to, you know... um, Go fast, die young, and leave a beautiful corpse, and now it's too late. Damn it. <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough for everything, man, and uh, <laughs> I don't even right, know where man. to go with that. But I will, I will, uh, I'm sure. Uh, yes, yeah. you. you. I must be allergic to good feelings. <laughs> um, I, I can't thank you enough. And, and like I said, this is not the last time you and I will do an interview for a show, uh, so don't even worry about that. But okay. it's sort of uh the last time within this realm and in this yeah. in this greater box set of, of of this what I've been doing. So thank you for everything over the years. Thank you for really uh, being an inspiration when I first started out. And uh, I'll see, like you said, I'll see you around campus. You bet. And um, um, do me a favor and post a link to um, this interview on my Facebook page so my friends can access it. Absolutely, will do. Thanks a lot. Pat. Have a great Have a night. Great my best to your mom. Absolutely, my best to your dad. You got it. Bye-bye. Bye for now, Tim. There you go, folks. That was Peter Robbins. That was amazing and fascinating. 
I, I almost wanted to explore more about his his walkabout there, but I was I was afraid it would take over the whole show. That was uh, really amazing stuff. And I meant what I said. If it wasn't it wasn't uh, if it wasn't for Peter, that hello, what is all that clicking? If it, if it wasn't for Peter at that first X conference, um, you know, I might have come home and been like, hey, forget all this shit. These people are crazy. But he was super friendly and uh, just super welcoming to to this whole scene. And uh, I, I I never forgot it because I came home and I was like, there's something to this. These people are pretty cool, you know. I I was uh, you know I was treated pretty cool by these folks. So big thanks to uh, Peter Robbins for everything over the years and for coming on the show tonight. Uh, next week it's a little weird right now. Uh, I have a guest for you planned. I think it's going to be on Thursday night. Um, it's going to be Colonel John Alexander who has never been on the show before, but he's been in the field for a super long time, and he's really kind of a legend in all this. So, And I was uh, afforded the opportunity to talk to him on the program here uh, through my friend Patrick Weege, and I was like, yeah, I'll definitely talk to Con- uh, Colonel John Alexander. So that's sort of a surprise. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's going to be a surprise episode um, in a sense. And we're going to be doing that on uh, on Thursday evening. So it's a special guest, like I said, surprise show, special guest, special night, Thursday night. Um, oh, i got to look on the calendar here. I don't even have the actual date in front of me. That's why I was kind of hesitant to even uh, mention it too much. Let me see, paint. All right, open this thing up. March 8th. All right, so Thursday, March 8th, um, we're going to have Colonel John Alexander talking about his new book, relatively new. It came out in September. That's all it takes me to put these shows together, folks. Uh, reality denied, first-hand experiences with things you can't, uh, first-hand experiences with things that can't happen but did. Uh, and that came out uh, in September. It's from Anomalous Books. And that'll be uh, next Thursday night. Special guest, special night. Um, I'm tempted to try to do a show also on Tuesday night because uh, we're really close now to the end, folks. Um I'll be all, I'm going to be I'm going to give you some real inside dirt here because I <laughs> I finally after a lot of meandering I think in January and like the beginning of this month I finally uh I finally pulled the trigger on the season finale guest who I want to have on the show for the season finale and uh, I sent out you know I reached out this weekend and I heard back from him and it's a go so we 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 have the finale guest, and I'm pretty sure we have the finale date. And I'm waiting to um, I'm waiting to solidify it all this week. But essentially, uh, later this week, at some point this week. So essentially, we're 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 really <laughs> we're really at the end. It's not Colonel John Alexander, so don't worry. Uh, that's that's not the finale. But um, yeah, I'd say I'd say we're like maybe maybe four or five six weeks away at this point. So we're really close, and uh, it's 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 bittersweet. Let me put it that way: it's bittersweet. And and I knew I I really sort of like had grappled with this um, over the weekend, and I was like, all right, it's time, it's time to pull the trigger on this. Let's let's uh, let's book the finale guest, and it looks like it's a go. So don't be sad, don't be sad. I'll I'll have I'll have info uh, on that eventually. Once it's locked in. Once it's locked in, I'll probably announce the finale 
date, let's say, um, as soon as I can, and I'll announce the finale guest, like, right beforehand, because I don't want some clown shoe to, like, <laughs> come in and swoop in and be like, we're going to have uh, the guest uh, next week. So I'm going to try to avoid that. Um, yeah, but for now, Colonel John Alexander next week talking about Reality Denied, March 8th. So, wait a minute. How was that? Yeah, I guess it is March 8th, yeah, because the first, all right. I'm all confused. It's like 10 days from now. Um, and if I, if, I, if, I, if I had my druthers, I would do a show on Tuesday night. But I'm laughing because you all know that uh, anytime I make a promise like that, I wind up breaking it. So if I say the show is going to be posted on Saturday, it's going to be posted on Sunday. Or if I say we're going to be back on this date, you can usually count on us being back like two weeks later. So if, if I said we were going to do a show next Tuesday night in addition to the show next Thursday night, there's almost no chance that will happen. So I'm going to hold back on that um, and, and, and hopefully maybe possibly do a show because I think it would be fun. But I think I would probably <laughs> deeply regret it the subsequent weekend now when I have two shows to put out. But nonetheless, uh, thanks for listening tonight. It was a really awesome experience here with Peter. And uh, you'll be hearing from me at the very least next Thursday night, March 8th, with Colonel John Alexander, talking about his new book, Reality Denied, and uh, exploring all kinds of cool stuff. So I'm sure it's going to be an amazing show because I've, I've wanted to talk to him for quite a while, actually. He's sort of one of those people that uh, was, like, always on the list for guests, but never I never got around to getting them on the show and, you know, uh, regular guests became sort of like family members, and we'd have them on the show all the time. The, the number of new spaces would be limited every season, and so it was like uh, it was hard to get sort of um, it was hard to fit in new people. But at this point, we're we're right at the end here, and he's somebody I always want to talk to. So it'll be really uh, cool to get him on the show. And uh, I guess that's it for tonight. So. Thank you, everybody, uh, for listening. Thanks again to Peter Robbins. And uh, until next time, this is your friend, Tim and all, signing off.